Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn. And today we're taking a trip into history to deal with one of my favorite story genres, Unsolved Mysteries. Today's story, The Beast of Gévaudan. We're going to take you to rural southern France in 1764, in what was then Gévaudan province, which makes up today's Lozère and Hot Wire districts. Hilly, rocky, scenic, dotted with livestock farms and small villages, but still very rural. It was all very quiet and pastoral, the kind of setting you might expect to see in an old French painting, with young children tending flocks of sheep or cattle on the hillsides and farmers tending fields in the valleys. But in 1764, their idyllic world was shattered when a mysterious and ferocious beast began attacking children, women, and men in a string of attacks that would last for three years. The beast was tracking them, almost always when they were alone, and then would attack, its huge jaws tearing out the victim's throat, then often dismembering the head, and sometimes carrying that off. In some instances it would eat portions of the bodies, in others it seemed to kill just for the sport of it. It was not known to kill sheep or cattle, just people. And in appearance it was much larger and different looking than a wolf. Wolf attacks were rare, but not unheard of. They generally attacked livestock, but sometimes humans as well, and when that happened, whole communities would turn out to hunt the man-eater. The district of Gévaudan was a quiet, secluded, mountainous region in southern France, but from 1764 to 1767, Gévaudan was tormented by a wolf-like beast that mauled over 200 people, killing over 100 of them, those being mostly women and children who, by their size, represented easier targets than grown men. The first recorded sighting was in 1764, when a young woman tending cattle near the town of Langonia was approached by what soon came to be called the Beast of Gévaudan. Luckily for her, sensing that this beast was a danger to the herd, the bulls that she was tending to were able to drive the beast off twice, and she remained unharmed, becoming a valuable witness. She described the animal as being much larger than a wolf, about the size of a large calf, with a reddish-brown coat with a black stripe running down its back. It had what she thought was a tasseled tail and long, sharp teeth. It was extremely fast and able to jump approximately 30 feet when attacking. It had a wide forehead and small ears that stood straight up. The victim of the next sighting was not so lucky. On the last day of June, 1764, a 14-year-old named Jean Boulet was attacked and killed by the beast near the village of Saint-Étienne-de-Joudard. One month later, a 15-year-old girl was attacked near Bois-Laurent in the same region. Mortally wounded, she managed with her last breath to describe the attacker as a horrible beast. Authorities started to note an unsettling pattern. Just less than two years previous, on September 8, 1762, the young son of the Yoles, herding a flock of sheep, disappeared near the village of Laval in the province of Dauphine. The remains of the boy, partially eaten, were recovered. It was the only killing in the region at that time. A wild animal, possibly a wolf, was suspected, and the body of the unfortunate victim was quickly buried. But now, in 1764, a number of attacks were taking place, and fear was beginning to settle in. Just one month before Jean Boulet's death, another shepherdess was attacked near the city of Saint-Fleur, in the Auvergne. In the next months, 
more and more children and women were killed by an unknown animal. On June 30th, 1764, in saint Etienne du Lugar, a 14-year-old girl was attacked and devoured. On August 8th and 25th, a young girl from Mesmerhan de Valier, and later young boy from Hamou de Pradel, both of them being 15 years of age, ended up suffering the same fate. Starting on September 1, the beast began a string of continued attacks on girls, women, and boys that would result in 20 deaths by the New Year's. There were 11 attacks in December alone, but the worst was still ahead. Authorities, fearing a mass hysteria in the population, asked for military assistance. Jean-Baptiste Duhamel, the captain of the local infantry, organized a hunt involving thousands of men. Given the size of the panic and the lay of the land, which was filled with caves, rock-strewn hills, bogs, and unpopulated forests, thousands of men were definitely needed. Duhamel was the equivalent of Gaston, as we know of him, through the tale Beauty and the Beast. He was a big man and very sure of himself, and he vowed to kill the beast. He had 1,200 men at his beck and call. Many of them would be roaming the woods and fields armed only with pitchforks, as only certain men were allowed to own firearms in rural France. Many of them did own firearms anyway, which they used on their own property. They needed to protect their livestock and farms, because you can only throw a pitchfork so far. One of these men was named Jean-Pierre Porcher, a farmer in Juliange. He was working in his stable as dusk was approaching. All around, snow was falling. Through a narrow window, he saw a shadow passing by, and instinctively he knew that what he had seen was nothing that existed in this village. He felt the hairs rise on the back of his neck. He grabbed his shotgun and quietly positioned himself up in the dormer of the barn, waiting until whatever it was came into sight again. There was a water spout in the middle of the village, and there he saw a monstrous animal such as nothing he had ever seen before. It was a wolf, but not a wolf, maybe three times bigger, with a long snout and long lean legs. It was russet-colored, with small upright ears and wolf-like fur with a black stripe down its back. Porcher was shaking all over. He brought his gun up, sighted in over the bead at the end of his shotgun barrel, and pulled the trigger. The beast fell to its knees, but then quickly regained its stance, angry, shaking its head ferociously, looking for the source of the gunshot. Porcher fired the other barrel, and the beast shouted out with short barks, bending its legs, and then bounding out of sight. After seeing the beast, and knowing he had hit it at least once with a blast from his shotgun, Porcher was convinced that the beast was otherworldly, and would and could kill everyone in Jevoudan. Word got out that night, and businesses and schools closed, and all the country works were abandoned. Captain Duhamel was called for, and he arrived, and from that day onward, Duhamel and his men, armed with sticks, spears, scythes, and sometimes shotguns, escorted him. Everywhere the beast was reported, they would come to the area to hunt it down. At least now there was snow on the ground, and the beast could be followed. One detachment of men led by a property manager named Lafont was told that the beast was stalking a villager near the castle bomb. They were told that it had been seen just now hiding behind a wall and watching as a young man tended his oxen in a pasture. The beast saw the approaching hunters and bounded off toward a grove of trees nearby. The hunters were able to surround the grove and started closing in on the beast. This time they flushed it out, and as it began to run, one of the men drew a bead on it from only ten feet away. He shot, 
It fell, but then got back up. Another shot was heard. It was hit a second time, and it rose up a second time, hobbling back into the grove. It was shot a third time, and as the men closed in, it disappeared. Somehow it had managed to evade them. No tracks, no blood traces. It was easy to see how wild rumors of the creature's invincibility were allowed to spread. It was hunted that whole night with no results. The next day, two hundred men, all well-armed, crashed the bushes throughout the grove, digging into piles of dead leaves, searching every patch of briars. They found nothing. That same day, two women reported they'd seen the beast limping through a field, so at least it seemed it was of this world. Two days later, three miles away, a young man from Remise was found bleeding, his scalp half torn away. That same day, a child from Fontaine was bitten on her cheek and her arm, and another girl was found dead in a field near the house of Monsieur Morange. The corpse in torn rags was that of a 21-year-old girl whose parents had forced her to go milk the cows. She hadn't wanted to leave the house due to the fear that had been sweeping the area. By now there were numerous witnesses to the beast, and they described it as not a wolf. Not entirely, anyway. It had the size of a calf or a donkey. It had reddish hair and a large head similar to a pig's. The mouth seemed to be always gaping, and it had short and perched ears. It had a white, large mark on its breast. Some said that its hind legs were hooved like a horse. The actions and appearance of this wolf, or hybrid wolf, or hybrid wolf mastiff, or whatever he was, are eerily similar to the descriptions of the huge wolf dog that approached the new owners of the ranch nicknamed the Skinwalker Ranch out of northwest Utah, where many paranormal events, including cattle mutations, and weird sightings occurred back in the 90s. So we'll enter at this point our theory number one, the theory that this beast may have been from another dimension. Rancher Terry Sherman said he poured three slugs into the huge wolf, which he said was three times the size of a normal wolf, three slugs that had no visible effect on whatever that thing was. He shot it because it had grabbed the head of a calf through the corral fence between its huge jaws and was trying to rip the head from the calf's body. Sketches were drawn up of the beast, and someone familiar with paranormal sightings matched it to that of a chupacabra. These beasts are known at least through oral history in the Central and South America regions. They're rumored to attack goats and livestock and to suck the blood out of them. It is said there was a sighting in Puerto Rico in 1995, and numerous sightings have been reported in spots across the globe, from Maine to Russia. Actually, when you study the drawings of the Beast of Jevudan, it looks like renditions of the Chupacabra. The theory here is that these beasts come and go through some kind of a portal from another dimension. The Chupacabra is said to be bipedal, meaning that it could walk or run standing using its back legs, as well as with all fours. For what it's worth, there were witnesses to the Jevudan beast who swore that the beast was running away using its back legs only, or sometimes standing and taunting its pursuers. This is just number one of the theories, and for those of you seeking an answer that doesn't trend toward the paranormal, there are more coming. We'll return to our story right after this sponsor message. And now, back to our story. A local newspaper wrote at the end of the first year of attacks, A ferocious beast of unknown type, coming from who knows where, attacks the human species, killing individuals, drinking their blood, feasting on their flesh, and multiplying its carnage from day to day. Hunters who are in pursuit have neither been able to stop it, 
"'because it is more agile than they, "'nor lure it into their traps, "'because it surpasses them in cunning, "'nor engage in combat when it presents itself to them, "'because its terrifying appearance weakens their courage, "'disturbs their vision, sets their hands shaking, "'and neutralizes their skill.'" Throughout the remainder of 1764, many more attacks occurred throughout the region. The wolf had become La Bête, the beast, and stories of its size and ferocity had spread. Most gruesome was its method of attack. It would stalk a person in broad daylight, keeping to cover, and then spring out of hiding and pounce upon its victim, giving out sharp, guttural barks while going for the person's throat, which it would tear out. It would at times stop to eat portions of the body, covering its face in blood, and at other times trot away with the severed head. It was as if this animal had been trained to maul people. The beast was described as being two or three times the size of a wolf, nearly the size of a donkey, but very agile and powerful. The villagers and farmers in that region of France were becoming understandably terrified. It was described again and again as a wolf-like canine with a tail, with a tall, lean frame capable of taking large strides. It was also described as having an elonged head similar to that of a greyhound, with a flattened snout, pointed ears, and a wide mouth sitting atop a broad chest. Over the course of three years, it had been witnessed by hunters and survivors of attacks. It appeared to be an extremely large wolf, but with many non-wolf-like characteristics. The terrified populace of Jevoudan did not sit idle, and individual stories of bravery captivated the public. As author J.C. Smith writes in Monsters of the Jevoudan, bounties were offered, and hunters combed the countryside looking for the creature. Wolves were killed, and their stomachs dissected, but the killer wolf continued killing and partially devouring its victims, sometimes several times a day. Most of the victims were children and adolescents. Only some were adults. By late December 1764, Rumors had begun circulating that there might be a pair of animals behind the killings. This was because there had been such a high number of attacks in such a short space of time, and because many of the attacks appeared to have occurred or were reported nearly simultaneously. On January 12, 1765, an attack took place that shocked and galvanized the citizens of the district. A ten-year-old shepherd from Chanelaitlis named Jacques Portevet and six friends of his were attacked by the beast. They had been looking after cattle in the mountains. The group, in addition to Jacques, consisted of four boys and two girls. They had wisely armed themselves with sticks with iron points, and they were staying close together, but they must have looked like a tempting target for the beast. When one of the little girls shouted that she had seen the beast, Jacques immediately called to them to band together with the stronger ones in the front, and they did, and just in time. The monster now made itself visible and was circling them, its mouth frothing. The children crossed themselves and placed their sticks between themselves and the beast, but the beast wasn't to be deterred. It waited for the opportunity, then sprang at Jacques and grabbed him by the throat, dragging him away from the group. But Portefeuille still had his weapon in his hands, and he was jabbing the beast as hard as he could, which caused the beast to drop him, tearing off one of Portefeuille's cheeks in the process. The children watched in terror as the beast paused to eat the severed cheek, then sprang into the group again knocking aside one of the little girls with his long snout and then locking its jaw on one of the boy's arms, the boy's name being Jean Verrere, and then he began to drag Jean away. One of the boys shouted to the group that they should run while the beach was eating Verrier, but Jacques Portefeuille said no, 
they would save their friend's life or all die trying. They then rushed toward the beast and their friend, stabbing wildly, trying to hit an eye or even the beast's tongue when it let go of Berrier's arm and snapped at them. Finally, the beast found it was becoming bogged down in a slough and had to release Verrier's arm, which it did. Portefeuille managed to land a sharp point on the beast's snout, and the beast, realizing that this wouldn't be an easy kill, ran away, leaving the children shaking, bleeding, and terrified, but alive. Hours later, the same beast killed two little girls, ages 9 and 13, in Villarette. The encounter with Jacques Portefeuille was reported to the Bishop of Mende, who brought it to the attention of Louis XV, who awarded 300 livres to Portefeuille and another 350 livres to be shared among his companions. The king also directed that Portefeuille be educated at the state's expense, and an annuity was begun. He then decreed that the French state would help find and kill the beast. The boy became a hero, was assigned to the brothers of Montpellier, and after performing brilliantly with his studies, joined the army, becoming a lieutenant of artillery. He died in combat in 1795. Captain Duhamel of the Claremont Prince Dragoons and his troops were being frustrated in their attempts to kill the beast. But due to the exposure of Portefeuille's story and a new reward having been promised by the king for the capture of the beast, over 20,000 men responded to an appeal for a hunt. Although extremely zealous in his efforts, non-cooperation on the part of the local herders and farmers stalled Duhamel's efforts. His efforts turned gruesome when he suggested they leave a mangled child's corpse out for the bait. And they did, but it failed to produce the beast. Then they tried putting dresses on some of the smaller hunters, hoping that the women's costumes would attract the beast, as it liked to prey on smaller women. That failed to produce results as well. Then Duhamel tried leaving a barely eaten child's corpse which had been doused with poison. On several occasions he almost shot the beast, but was hampered by the incompetence of his guards. At one point he had the beast cornered, and it had been forced to cross a river, but the hunters on the town side had ignored their orders and didn't show up for the ambush. When the village of La Maison was not present and ready as the beast crossed the Truyère River, Duhamel became frustrated. Meanwhile, an old wolf hunter from Normandy named Deneval, who had personally killed over 1,200 wolves, went to the king in Versailles and told him he'd been losing sleep hearing of the continued attacks by this beast. He swore to his majesty that he would kill the beast and bring in the animal in order that all the lords of the courts could witness his triumph. The king gave Deneval the green light, and he arrived in St. Fleur on February 19, 1765, with his son, two steppers, and six huge mastiffs, trailing him by a couple of days. To spare his dogs, Deneval traveled slowly, and while the villagers back in Jevoudan waited, twenty more children were killed. When the famed wolf hunter reached Jevoudan, he took time to study the countryside and the habits of the beast. He measured the distance the beach could cover between bounds at 28 feet, and then he pronounced that this beast would not be easy to catch. He also announced that he did not want any rivalry and ordered Duhamel to leave the area. Time passed while management problems erupted and while Deneval waited for his dogs and the rest of his hunting crew. And during this time, now in March, the beast devoured a 40-year-old woman named Allie, then a 20-year-old girl in the village of Fayette. Then, in a warehouse in Malavillette, the beast stole a 5-year-old girl from under her parents' noses, and then struck on the 12th, 13th, and 14th in very distant places in Auvergne and Picardy, again leaving people to wonder if there was more than one beast doing this. 
Denebal now had access to 1,200 locals and was combing the countryside for the beast, but after 30 days, all he had managed to accomplish was the killing of one scrawny wolf. Frustrated, he repeated Duhamel's trick of poisoning a cadaver that he'd laid out as a trap near the woods where the beast had been sighted. This time the beast did devour the cadaver, but the poison didn't affect him. He continued to kill on an almost daily basis. Throughout April, the beast continued his rampage, and Deneval, having been the target of public anger and scorn, turned on the peasants and blamed them for the lack of results. By now, even England was jeering at France's lack of results. A London newspaper wrote that a French army of 120,000 men had been defeated by this fierce animal, and that after eating 25,000 cavalrymen and their artillery, the beast had been defeated by a female cat whose kittens the beast had attacked. Louis XV was enraged. He called for his number one hunter and gun expert, Mr. Antoine de Bauterne. His professional title, the Port Arquebus, the carrier of the arquebus, or heavy musket, and the king decreed that he go forth and kill this beast and bring him back to Versailles for public display. The arquebus was also known as a hook gun. A metal rod inserted in the earth was used to steady the gun, which fired a large ball, fairly accurately, up to 400 yards. Back in Jevoudan, it was all fear and rage. You can almost hear them now arguing that with thousands of men tromping all through the region, the beast was sure to stay away from them. On the other side of that coin, the beast was attacking and killing people almost daily, and in broad daylight. So it didn't seem too intimidated by the number of hunters out looking for it. Whatever this beast was, it had tasted human flesh and developed a bloodlust. It was a man-eater and needed to be killed. The Denevals were replaced in June of 1765 by Francois Antoine, sometimes wrongly identified with his son, Antoine de Bauterne. As mentioned, the king's sole arquebus-bearer and lieutenant of the hunt. Francois Antoine arrived in Le Malzieu on June 22nd. About 13 deaths later, on September 20th or 21st, Antoine killed a large gray wolf measuring 31 inches high, 5 foot 7 inches long, and weighing 130 pounds. The wolf, which was named Le Loup de Chaise after the nearby Abbey de Chaise, was said to have been quite large for a wolf. Antoine officially stated, We declare by the present report signed from our hand, we never saw a big wolf that could be compared to this one. Hence, we believe this could be the fearsome beast that caused so much damage. The animal was further identified as the culprit by some attack survivors, who recognized the scars on its body inflicted by victims defending themselves. The wolf was stuffed and sent to Versailles, where Antoine's son, Antoine de Bauterne, was hailed as a hero. Antoine stayed in the Auvergne woods to chase down the female partner of the beast and her two grown pups. Antoine succeeded in killing the female wolf and a pup, which seemed already larger than its mother. At the examination of the pup, it appeared to have a double set of dew claws, a hereditary malformation found in the Bas Rouge or Beauceron dog breed. The other pup was shot at and hit and was believed to have died while retreating between the rocks. Antoine kept his fear and doubts. After all, was not the beast shot, stabbed, and believed to be killed at other occasions as well? With one pup that Antoine could not find, he returned to Paris and received a large sum of money, over 9,000 livres, as well as fame, titles, and awards. As far as the king was concerned, the beast of Jevoudan had been killed, and the affair had ended successfully. 
The king himself had shown that the foolish superstitions held by the poor peasants of Jevudan were just that. Their apocalyptic beast was but a large, common wolf. However, on December 2nd, back in Jevudan, two boys were attacked, one six and one twelve years old, suggesting that the beast was still alive. It tried to capture the youngest one, but it was successfully fought off by the older boy. Soon after, successful attacks followed, and some of the shepherds witnessed that this time, or this beast, showed no fear around cattle at all. A dozen more deaths are reported to have followed attacks near La Bessere Saint-Marie. These were terrible tragedies. Two little girls at Libra were playing in front of their house when the beast grabbed one of them in his fangs. The second girl jumped on its back to save her friend and was carried away. The villagers responded to the screams of the second girl only to arrive and see her body with no head. The beast had torn it off and carried it away. The people of Jevudan pleaded for help from the king, but heard nothing. On the 19th of June, 1767, after a large pilgrimage at Notre Dame de Tours, the Marquis of Absher, one of the lords of Jevudan, organized a beat, which is a tactic used to corner a wolf by using long lines of men armed with noisemakers moving in a planned direction to place the animal in a location where he can be seen and shot, and one of those armed hunters was Jean Chastel. He was 60 years old, born near the turn of the century near Bessere Saint-Marie, which had seen and witnessed a great deal of the terror in those times with attacks and loss. He was a solid and religious man. The whole region knew of him and respected him for his honesty. Like all hunters of that time, he had poured his own balls for his musket, this time using silver from a religious amulet, because he had heard long ago that silver bullets were the only way to kill a creature of the devil, and this beast was certainly that. Chastel had stationed himself near the Sognan d'Auvergne, near Sag. His gun was loaded with two bullets. He was saying the rosary when he heard the beast, what he described later as the real one. He calmly closed his rosary and placed it in his pocket, then removed his glasses, placing them in a case. He would trust to his real eyesight for this. He slowly shouldered his weapon, aimed, and pulled the trigger. The beast was hit, but didn't fall. It just stood still. As it turned out, it was dead on its feet. Chastel let loose his dogs, and they ran up to the beast, knocking it down, and the dogs, showing a virile hatred for this beast, began ripping up the still warm corpse. Chastel ordered the dogs off, brought up his wagon, and loaded the corpse of the huge animal onto the wagon whereupon he drove it up to the castle of Besk. Here, with witnesses present, it could be seen that this animal was not a wolf. Its feet, its ears, the hugeness of its mouth indicated a monster of unknown origin. They opened the stomach and found the arm of a young girl that the monster had just slain two days before in Pembrac. After displaying the beast's corpse for two days throughout the district, Chastel traveled with the grisly remains to Versailles to present the beast to the king, hoping that someone in Versailles could identify the species of the beast. But due to its putrefied state and the fact that much of it had decomposed, it was buried before anyone who might have been able to it was buried before anyone who might have been able to answer Chastel's questions could do so. The king, when he saw Chastel, belittled him, not wanting to lose face among his retinue, but being politically astute enough to recognize that Chastel would be treated like a hero when he returned to his people. The king ordered a stipend to be paid for Chastel's efforts. Back in Jevudan, Chastel was treated as a hero. Recently, a stone monument was erected in his honor, 
and for centuries it was said that no grass would grow on the spot where the evil beast was killed. The killing stopped after Chastel's bullet stopped the beast of Jevoudan in June of 1767, and it was many years before life got back to normal in the tiny province. In 1790, the district of Jevoudan disappeared from the records as it was assimilated into other districts. Jean Chastel had shot the beast at the slopes of Mont Mouchet, now called Le Son d'Auvert, during a hunt organized by a local nobleman, the Marquis Apchere, as we related on June 19, 1767. Abbe Fabre reprinted the sworn account which said that Chastel shot the creature with a large caliber bullet and buckshot combination, self-made with silver. The body was then brought to the castle of Marquis d'Apchere, where it was stuffed by Dr. Boulanger, a surgeon at Sog. Dr. Boulanger's post-mortem report was transcribed by a notary named Marin, and is known as the Marin Report on the Beast. Upon being opened, the animal's stomach was shown to contain the remains of its last victim. There are a number of theories out there regarding the origin and species of the beast. Our first theory is that the beast was truly a supernatural being, which would account for his being able to recover from gunshots. But this theory was placed out on a limb when the beast was seen limping across a field by two women. Supernatural beasts aren't affected by bullets, or so the folk tales say. Then there's theory number two, which posits that the beast was actually a lion, a young male or sub-adult lion, which had not yet developed a full mane. Actually, the housing and display of exotic animals, including lions, was quite the rage in England and France in the 17th century. The word menagerie originates in France and means a collection of animals, and there were menageries in Versailles and elsewhere that charged admission to see lions, bears, elephants, and strange species. It is possible that a lion or lion hybrid may have been spawned, but many people did know what a lion looked like, and even though Duhamel at one point said that the beast must have been sired by a lion, I still think it's a stretch. Theory number three suggests that the beast was a hybrid wolf dog, and this theory holds a lot of weight. First, the lords of the various manors kept a generous stock of mastiffs, as well as some great Danes. Both are very large dogs. These were used for protection of the family, as well as for hunting. Mastiffs were especially good at hunting wild boar. If you study the reports of people who have cross-bred wolves, you'll find that the female wolf, or she-wolf, will mate with almost any canine when in heat if she doesn't have a wolf mate. And there was no shortage of mastiffs, greyhounds, or Great Danes in France in the 18th century. The she-wolf is also known to feed her own young pups, whatever they may be. In the Manual of French Hunting, the Count of Le Quateau de Cantalou states on page 209 that a she-wolf that has no male will let any stray dog penetrate her. Half-blood animals are born, and if they're crossed again with real wolves, strange things can result. In 1872, the Count writes, I killed a big wolf dog that was certainly a crossbreed of that. He had more the head of a mastiff than a wolf, and the tips of his ears were floppy. But for the rest, it was all wolf. Written in the report of Marin, which was the report of the beast that Chastel had killed, is this. And in the castle of Besk, the Marquess of Abshire showed us this animal who looked like a wolf, but with a very different face and different proportions. Three hundred people witnessed this. Many hunters and a lot of experts made us remark that only the tail and the posterior of this animal is a wolf. Its head is monstrous. Its eyes have a particular membrane that can conceal the eye socket. Its neck is covered with thick reddish hair crossed with some black stripes. It has a white mark shaped as a heart on its breast, 
"'Its legs have four fingers with larger nails than wolves. "'His legs are thick, especially its front legs, "'and his color is one of a deer. "'This was remarkable, "'because all the hunters said they had never seen a wolf with such colors. "'Some also noticed that its ribs did not look like the ribs of a wolf. "'Therefore, this animal could turn around more easily than a wolf. "'Still, there are unanswered questions, three that come to mind for me. "'One, what turned this beast into a killer of human beings? "'If it was rabies,' the beast would not have survived to kill for three years. Seven days is the lifespan for an animal with rabies. Was the beast a pet that was trained to kill? It was no secret that manor lords trained their large dogs to kill wild boar and even deer. But as for livestock and people, that would be unthinkable. It is a known fact that large cats, like lions and tigers, can develop a blood lust for humans. Once they attack a human trainer, they have to be put down. The same goes for wolf dogs. Most states here in the U.S. set a limit on what percentage wolf a pet wolf dog can be. Past experience has it that wolves are wild animals, and they could turn on humans as well as other pets in the area. Question 2. Why did the beast appear to be bulletproof? Some of the hunters with witnesses present said they had knocked the beast down, but that it got up and survived. Some authors theorized that it had an owner that gave it a coat of wild boar skins that could stop bullets. One went so far as to say Chastel's own mastiff was the beast, and that he finally had to call it and kill it, and in the process, removed its special coat. And question three, how did the beast get so large? I found a possible answer here. I did some searching looking for canine gigantism, and found some very interesting pictures and research. Canine gigantism is called canine acromegaly. That's A-C-R-O-M-E-G-A-L-Y. It's a rare condition in dogs that renders them twice to three times the size of other members of their breed. I'm looking right now at a dog named Yuki, Y-U-K-I, a Florida wolf dog which has taken the internet by storm in recent years. Yuki is a gentle, loving, huge wolf dog who is or was cared for at Shy Wolf Sanctuary in Naples, Florida. The pictures always show young, smiling girls giving Yuki attention, and he appears to be enjoying it although the posts say he is suffering from cancer. Yuki has a massive head and very pronounced toes on his feet. He eats about 40 pounds of food per week and weighs 120 pounds. He is 87.5% gray wolf, 8.6% Siberian husky, and 3.9% German shepherd. He isn't wolf size. He is wolf size times three. You can check him online. I'll put a picture of him up at 1001 Heroes Facebook page. You can also search YUKI in Naples. Canine acromegaly isn't mentioned in the article, but it sure looks like that's what's taking place here. It's a medical condition in cats and dogs that results in overproduction of a growth hormone. It's usually associated with increased body size and enlarged head and organs that are larger than normal. Well, that's our story. Hope you enjoyed The Beast of Jevoudan. If you did, Send us a kind review at Apple Podcast and share our show with a friend. We'll be back next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time with a brand new episode. Until then, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.